Jackson the Cat. Episode 3, Motley's Record. February, Friday the 15th. Ah, it was perfect. I told everybody, literally during the evening, I'm going to write about this in my diary. It was exquisite. Work gets out. Per usual, I throw out an invitation to Jackson to come on, but he always will say an excuse that he wants me to know is a lie, like that he has football practice or he's going out to give free hugs. Motley, in this evening I'm burdened hard, he said. There's a shrine in your honor at which I must pay homage. That's nice. At least him and I are speaking again. So I just say, suit yourself, and then I'm off to be extremely glamorous, hailing a Doherty, obviously, and then, from the back, I slip on the change of clothes I brought with me in a bag to work. I don't usually wish to reupholster my costume in carriages, I'll explain to the driver as my arm stealthily jams into an ulster. I just brought it in advance, because I need to look elegant for this meet. There's usually not a problem, so long as I tip four Franzens higher, which is why I often don't have any money by Saturday. But my god, it's so worth it. This time of year, it's a perfect tingling dusk as I'm taken through the gaslights of the city center and brought to the only good theater in town. I tip and walk out always with my walking stick at the ready for class. Now comes the time to survey the marquee. Hmm. Shut up based on a true story of the circumstances. Plays already? Seems a little drear for my taste, but I hear Jenny Moffless is in it, and she was incredible as Princess Ham. In I go. I can get the tickets at will call, and by now, they don't wonder why I'm there so ahead of time. It's about two hours and a half to curtain, which is what you need for a proper hand. I'm always a little fashionably late to things I show up for, so it's unsurprising that the usual members, Biddleston, Krugly, and Junk, are already seated at the table on the mezzanine. Have I ever taken the time to describe the atrium of the Altakleidungen in this journal? I think I haven't. Here. Imagine, if you can, a burnt orange gauding itself through the walls in the concession box. Picture then that burnt orange melting into a fine band of brownish-orange, a perfect Titian. And then you'll see the theme of the decor. That band is subtle and hovers in the middle of each wall, and is actually at a perfect ratio to suspend with the eyeline. So you're warmed by the burnt orange underneath and savaged by that same burnt orange overhead. It's on a dialectical principle, my math tutor would have said. The main thing, though, is the stairs. In the front lobby, over these gorgeous double doors, you have sort of a mezzanine or balcony with a railing, I think made of gold. It's probably metal, but my reflection always appears gilded. This can be reached by two plush maroon stairways on opposite sides of the room leading up to the balcony. Up there, you can just make out the sconce gaslights and the tables, with the round center one always occupied by two lovely doyens and one upstanding sir in gallant evening wear. These are, Messrs. I mean, 
messers, the hypothetical crowd I'm addressing, not the collective term for the clutch on the balcony. Messers of the dreamed-for academy on prosody, which I'm usually addressing in my nocturnal visions after a thirsty Thursday. These three fine friends under the ensconced gaslights were, as I said, Biddleston, Junk, and, of course, Sir Crugley, of the Franzia Hand and Footlights, comprising also yours truly. After all, I am the founder and chair. I make my way up to the balcony. There he is, Sir Motley, as late as you please, Krug said with a gleam in his eye. Being an officer of the law, he has to indict people. I stood indignantly, hardly hiding my grin. Well, I was ready to summon my cab as soon as it was time for me to clock out, but obviously Raphael had something that, We don't need to hear the excuse, just sit down, Junk said. There were already concealed stacks of eleven cards each near every player's left boot. The game's called Hand and Foot because you start with the eleven cards in your hand that you hold, and only after you get rid of all those can you access the eleven cards by your foot, and only one of those foot cards have you actually gotten to see. Bid once said her aunt used to call getting into your foot picking the jam out of one's toes, but that Bid's mom always hushed her because she was sort of uptight. You know, I protested, I tried to warn you that I'd be even more late than you should this. Krugly gestured over his gin glass at my arm, automatically outheld. Outheld is valid. You can find it in ancient sources. Outheld toward him with my mink and greatcoat. He thinks he hasn't suborned the maid of D, so a policeman will take his coat and protect and serve his gentility. Biddleston and Krugly chuckled while I said, I was just hoping gentlemanliness would exist somewhere here. Gosh. I draped the coat over his chair and he grumbled, fidgeting his backside, while Junk said, What is it that took you so long? I opened my maw at her, shocked. You just told me you didn't want me to say. Well, it is so, said Biddleston, I think. It's a turn in stance. Yeah, 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 okay, fine, just take your seat and pick your elevens, said Junk. And you, sir, I said, pointing to Krugly, you've activated our Passadon for the week. Oh, all right, he said. Then bid let us launch it. I have an ongoing challenge to Krugly to see how long he can go in a game without insulting me, which usually he breaks within minutes. Once done, his punishment is that, always starting with sensible Biddleston, she'll whisper something in Krugly's ear, and Krugly with his accent will, we hope, Bungle it up as he whispers it to Junk, who then whispers it to me, where I, one deemed incapable of a whisper by the quorum, can announce the Krugly corrupted outcome. Ah, hell, Krugly said, with Bid cupping the phrase into his ear, and then leaned to Junk. As in my narrative, the phrase is passed round the circle, I realize that I don't think I've given a proper description of the members of the Hand and Footlights, and even what it is we do. So I'll record that as well for some imagined posterity. It was started by, as I said, yours truly back when it had been three months after the beginning of the Cirques, when mass lethargy owned the city from capita to capita. Nobody was really doing anything, and I couldn't bear another month of only social interaction with Raphael. I had Jackson, and while he certainly has his challenges on the one hand, on the other hand, he is someone who has my challenges and doesn't seem very anxious to have them. 
So I came round to call on my two old theater pals, Junk and Krugly, to inquire if they wanted to see a performance of Shakespeare, since the Alta Kleidung and Proscenium downtown had just opened up again and was quietly, if melancholically, putting on some tentative plays. They said yes, and then the night of the show, just some hour or so before. We were having tea at the Café Jean when Krugly started telling us he'd developed a new mania for this card game, Hand and Foot. His wife had taught it to him during the first months of the circumstances, just so they'd have something to do at the house, and Krugly got so devoted to it that he actually became more obsessed than Marion. He was complaining because by this time she'd actually become weary of it all, seeing Krugly spreading cards on their bedspread by nightfall, or when Marion would pick up her morning paper, finding on the table their H&F score sheet with a big circle around the blank part and three question marks near the words, How will it end? And looking up from this to see Krugly dealing her in. As well, each player is supposed to choose their own lot, so that's offensive inherently. Krugly sighed. Well, eventually, it seemed, this could not stand, and now the man was hamstrung. And I can't just play it with the perpetrators I arrest, he groused. Either too grumpy or the defender refuses to join in. I was bleeding with sympathy. Meanwhile, Junk took that moment to unceremoniously reveal that she used to play it when a child. Why don't you try playing it with us, she said. It's been a while, but I think I can remember the basic mechanics. Can't say if it's a right idea or not, said Krugly, while manically dumping jacks and kings and aces on the table. But we can't start learning now, I said. We need to start heading for the show. Master of punctuality out of the blue, said Krug, but he acquiesced and shoved the 52 back in his pockets. I should say 54, since you include jokers. Actually, I should say 320-something, since the game involves about two decks per person playing. In our case, these days, Krugly and Biddleston share four decks, from which they draw from, while Junk and me share four decks, from which we draw from. But anyway, we were in the foyer at the Kleidungen, about to stride in for the show, when I was struck with an idea. Even before all this happened, I said, was anybody ever using the tables up there? No, said Krugly. No, said Junk. Yeah, that is a funny thought. You never actually see anybody using those tables, like even when it's right before a show. She'd already been going on about people who were playing what it would be like to go to other cities, simulation games, and even specifics about their travel plans that aren't real. But to Junk's credit, when I intervened with this non sequitur, she was quick to take my pivot. Maybe, I said, stopping by the double doors, maybe we could play cards there. Huh, said Junk, if we take to it. Yeah, Junk said. That way we could be right where we need if we do it on nights when there's shows. Holding hand and foot's back in my bloodstream, said Krugly as he pushed a huge door open. The method of distribution's not my prerogative. The next week we tried and it was great. Though we learned to come earlier than an hour before showtime. By week two, Junk, with her old game-loving spirit, and I, enamored myself of the game, agreed to Krug's request to bring along his, I believe, sister-in-law, a secretary to a tradesman, who neither of us had met, Biddleston. 
With her, we got on famously, and thus, with the full cast of Bid, Junk, Krugly, and me, I decided to make it a thing and christen us the Hand and Footlights. I'm very funny. I do voices also. History Made On the Friday, of which I'm speaking, which is tonight, the atmosphere was unusually glorious, and things got around pretty quick. By the way, for the pass-it-on, Bid's phrase was, The chickens come home to roost, and Krugly's wonderful bungling made me announce it as, The kitchen is the mojust. This weekend was our third hand. I suppose I should mention, hand and foot is such a massive game that a hand, like a round, usually takes one to two hours, and typically we don't finish a game until we've done three, maybe four hands, hence three or four weeks. Like I said, this was our third hand, and Junk was in second, Krugly surprisingly lagged at the rear, I in third, and Biddleston on top. A real dark horse. I told you, right, I said, about the errand boy who's got a problem with his cousin. No, said Junk. I don't think you did. Assuming you told us every non-on-the-clock minute of every co-worker's time, me chided Krugly. Well, the buffet they've started together has gone haywire, I said, registering a possible book of fives very fuliginous, because Jeff disagrees with him about putting separate straws in each of the food troughs for the customers to suck out of. Huh, said Junk. People say I'm a gossip, and they're not wrong, but without me, none of the complex social web of our town and city hall would stay connected. That's not good, said Biddleston. No, I said. Hey, Junk, how's that mystery passion project of yours going? Um, it's going okay. I'm kind of stuck. Junk's day job is designing crash test courses for the latest horse drawns. I know that sounds exciting, and she's pretty nifty at it, too. But trust me, she's bored out of her skull. She said, You know, I even think I have a good puzzle going for the actual mystery. I just don't know what characters or description to dress it up with. Before you ask, yes, I've offered to help her with this, but I've been politely rejected on the grounds that my contributions would be too highbrow. Hmm... Junk's pitch is she wants to publish a mystery story with all but the last chapter included. That's because she'd market it as a contest where any Franzians who can guess the solution accurately will win some sort of prize. I discard a ten, said Biddleston. Well, what about you then, Bid? I said. Speaking of description, I know you've been shorted of hours lately at the secretarial gig. Maybe like two months ago, right? Anything moving along with that aural describing project? This idea would be so good. Bid declared last week, when she was younger, she used to whisper what was happening in shows or band concerts for her mother, who was blind. I liked it, though the band concerts especially could get tedious, since usually I'd just say, nobody's perspired through their shirts, since that was my mother's great nerve-wracking worry. But I told her what I thought was she should offer it as a service, wherein she could sit between two blind patrons at maybe the Clydungen or something, and alternate back and forth, whispering in both their ears. I told Bid I'd help her market, and so far, just waiting for her A-OK. Oh yes, she said. You'll notice that Krugly and me both each have exactly two red threes, Junk said. I'm still thinking about it. Well, just drop me word whenever you're set, I said, because I know some older people with dim eyesight who'd love to hear about flop-up.
Is it your turn? Said Junk. Whose turn is it? Did you go? It's me, I said. Gosh. I pretended to smack her wrist with the butt of my cards, one of which had a slight scratch on it. In the decks shared by Junk and me, untouched by Bid and Krugly, since, remember, they share their own decks. I told you, hand and foot's a game with a lot of cards. But in my and Junk's stash, we noticed some months ago that nearly a fourth of them had developed a little scratch somewhere on the backs. This happens to so many shoddily made post-circ items, honestly. Obviously, I pointed this out right away, since this could be used for nefarious purposes. But then Junk and the rest of us realized that Hand and Foot's a game where having any idea what the other player is holding only gives you a small advantage, and only if it's someone sharing cards with you. So that rules out Krugly and Bid using it for any ends. As for me and Junk using any small advantage to detect each other's cards, or even using scratches for figuring out what's in one's own foot, which needs to remain hidden from oneself for half the round. We checked and saw the distribution of scratches is basically random and widespread, and covers such a large Porsche, remember, a fourth, that you couldn't use it to x-ray anyhow. So we kept on using our beloved old two through acers. I'm formulating my plans, I told Junk. Another two drawn. I knew I could make a wild book, perhaps multiple. It was that kind of night. Just somebody ask him about any trivial pursuit about the minor characters in his life that's been unfolding. Krugly frowned from the other side of his fan. He'll feel satisfied we're interested and let us move on. Oh, well, said Biddleston. What happened with that nephew of yours? Who, I said. The one you were telling us about, said Junk. She rearranged her cards. Richard, I think. The one you mentored in how to make friends when he was in high school. Yeah, him, Krugly said. I kept scrutinizing my hand. Every player has to discard one card, and only one card, at the end of their turn. With a certain pair, I did not have enough for a clean book, but if I used a two to dirty it, the eights would stay dirty the whole game. Sorry? You know, said Krugly. Your co-worker, Megan's son. Megan. Yeah, him, said Junk. The one at Sorendown. While back, you and Jackson were helping him with something? Mm. I said, no, yeah, I did my best imitation of a grin. Ah, I am going to discard a black three. Motley, good God, you ought to have done that years ago, said Krugly. Worth nothing in the game, a black three. You discarded a joker, said Bid. <gasps> what? I swooned. Shit, I wanna, we can't do take backs, said Junk. We all had a whole debate about this a while ago. Besides, said Krug, Bid's about to discard her own, thus... Well, Bid's hand hovered. I haven't yet. I steeled my resolve. Ah, go ahead. Then I winked at all. I can lose a good card because I'm just that good anyway. Biddleston smiled and discarded her seven. He's just trying to make a wild book again, Junk said. That risky old gag, said Krugly, opening a clean book of aces with a satisfied stamp. Hope to high water your foot stacked with them. You have to live life with an edge of danger, I said. Otherwise, everything will be too practical. I don't think you have to worry about that happening to you, Junk said, as she discarded a black three. Miss, I miss everything. I miss traveling outside of town. Jeff, I miss pineapples. 
I miss football games with other teams. I miss learning about what was happening in the world outside of our stupid little house. I know. John Dupree gazed weepily at the actress across him. I miss it too. But hey, what's the longest this could go on? A month? The crowd burst into laughter. Oh man, it was hilarious. We were rolling in the aisles at that. Junk, beside me, didn't seem impressed. Kind of an easy joke to make, she whispered. Ugh, you have to have fun sometimes. After the show let out, we all strode through the tide of Brick and Boulevard. Oh, it was glorious, I said. Ah, Krugly said. Struck me as a whole lot of something I already know. Oh, but they gave it such a literary twist, I exhaled. Did they? said Junk. Seems like they just did a lot of really old jokes and then tried to imply that the Cirques are good if you have a passion for pen spinning and a husband with money. I mean, her pen tricks were cool. I just didn't think it made great theater. But it's about any of us finding ourselves. You're under arrest! We all jumped and then saw Krugly was just doing another gag. We were always a bit more uneasy with him this point in the evening. Got you now, Johnny Krugly. Found you and you're going right to the bedchamber. Well, lads, lassies, I've found myself as Sir Motley promised. Thus, I'm betaking myself to a long night's rest. Night all. There were hugs all round and Krugly disappeared in his brownstone. After we'd walked a few steps, I said, I am about to be rolling in it. Yeah, yeah, wait until we've walked on said Junk. First, I'm definitely buying nail polish. Then I am absolutely going to have a feast from Hagar's Slop Hut. Okay, okay. Uh, well, we're far enough away now, said Junk. All right, so did you have it? Yes, for last week. Biddleston drew out the score sheet. Yeah, yeah, so tonight I'll have it. That's right. I'm about to make so much money, I said, rubbing my cashmeres together. I wouldn't be so sure, Junk said. Even though you bet to show for last week's hand, remember, you only put down three Franzens. Well, that's still more money than I had. Come on, cough it up. Since we went over the score sheets of last week's hand at the start of tonight's meet, we'd all been sitting through the evening already aware of the outcome of the bets. Yeah, I'll explain. Krugly's a cop. And gambling got outlawed in Francia about six months after the start of the Cirques, right around the time I got the idea. So one night, when, as is natural, we left behind Krug first, since he lives the closest to the Clydungen, I sounded Jay and Bid out on the idea of occasionally making it interesting. We don't do it too often, although more recently, and it's fun for a lark. Obviously, it's not perfect that we're excluding the copper, but that sentence should tell you everything you need to know. And we don't want to put him in a position to ask him to look the other way on something. All right, and I had bet to be in first, said Chunk, pouring over the spreadsheet. So I don't get any money, but yeah, wow, like last time, Biddleston, you also bet to be in first, and you are going to get two Franzens each from me and also Motley. Ah, oh, what? I said. Ah. Well, I'm still a Franzen richer. I'm on a lucky streak, Bid said. I'll treat you to a milkshake if I can have 66% of it, I told her. We parted ways, fat and cashened. Cashened ought to be a word. So, yes, I sit here, in my garret, writing my journal entry by the light of a waxed candle, straining my eyes only a little bit, wondering if I'll see any wraiths this eve, and reflecting on the bounteousness of good gaming. 
fine companionship. Except for that one snag in the eve with that particular line of questioning. It had to be one of the most glamorous Fridays yet. Easily in the... There's someone at the door! Saturday, February the 16th. I had to write this. I should be in bed, but it's so wild. I have to get it down. Right now, I'm in the wee hours. This is what unfolded. I stop writing, totally flummoxed by the knocking at my door. I don't even know how late into the night. I open it, and standing there is junk. Yes. Hello, I said. Hey, she said. Why don't you come in? All right. I was just on the verge of serving an excellent beef brace for an after-hours feast. You have to have a scoop. A scoop? I shape it into the form of iced cream, or to look like it, so you can imagine Brilloff's excellent dairy treats are being personally couriered. Like beef. Well, you have to work with what you have. Then I rested the glasses, ready to fill up. What brings you here at such an unseemly hour? Yeah, it's the score, said Junk. You can sit on the couch. What about the score? Not one enough? I grinned. Actually, Biddleston's won too much. Lately. Tell me about it. I served the liqueur. Yeah, right, but no, she said. Well, it's not making sense. I have a copy of some previous week's scores. Oh, you keep copies? She did something that always makes me nervous, which is that she set the glass on top of the bend in her arm and then folded her small arms together so the drink could rest precariously over the crook in her elbow. I never know why you don't just drink the thing. I've been keeping some, she said. I've been keeping all of them, she tacked on quickly. I see. And then realized I didn't. Why? Junk kept her arms folded and then, finally, picked up the liqueur glass to, thank you, lift it out of the crook of her right, or is it left, elbow, and then, yes, the moment arrives. Oh, anticlimactically and awkwardly siphon it back to her other hand so that that one can place it on the opposite elbow. What? said Junk. Sorry, I'm always mesmerized by what you do with a cup. Oh yeah, sorry. She set it back on the table and then unhelpfully took no sip. So, yeah. It's always such elaborate movements. Yeah. You really ought to get a front-carrying sack for your potables, like what mothers had used to use for carrying their infants in the days of forgotten lore. So, yeah, anyway, I'm trying to say is that I'm concerned she's not been going according to Hoyle. Hoyle? Not going by the book. I dropped my jaw, and then I flushed. Wait, you think Biddleston is being underhanded? I had to admit, there did seem to hang over our card games some kind of faint tension for a while now. At this point, I sat on the chair across Dear Junk. I couldn't help but smile. You think she's cheating the game? Junk squirmed in her seat. Well, I don't know. She might be. Well, what makes you think she might be? I set the glass on the table and bent forward, ready to investigate. So here, Junk brought out her copies of the old score sheets. I think we need to look at the last roundup for the last game we completed. I gandered. Final score of the last game, from like three weeks ago, was Lemois second, some 100 and 800 points, 
A third place to Krug, barely beneath me at like 100 and 700, Junk at a low fourth with only 9,460. That's unusual. Junk normally gets a very close third. And Biddleston at an astonishing 12,000, plus like 940, I think. I had forgotten. Wow, I said. Man, she raked it in that time. Uh Uh-huh. It's the way she doesn't start laying books down until the absolute last second, so nobody knows what sort of boons she actually has until it's too late. Yeah, right. That's something I've noticed, too. But what I've also noticed is this. She pointed to some previous sheets. If you look at the sheet of the games we've been playing for, actually quite a while, for the last couple years, the thing is, usually Biddleston comes in second and Krugly wins the actual blue ribbon spot. Right. Except for the last several games, Biddleston's been in first. Handily. What happened? Huh. I took a sip to emphasize my consternation. Maybe she's finally come out of her shell. Yeah, except, but look at the numbers. Always she's been in second until lately when it's been first? It is a little odd. Hmm. Well, so, I said, what should we do? I didn't bother asking why she had come to me. Thing is, because Motley confides in everyone, everyone confides in Motley. I don't really know. It's just so bizarre. The stove crackled, and I ambled up and returned with a braised scoop each on a dish. I implored Junk to try some, and in our repast we let the conversation wander a little, taking a brief pause from the awkward quandary at our feet. So the thing is, from the early days of the strip, it actually pretty well adhered to Flintlock's five laws of comic strip permeability. Ah, I said. But once Yenta came on as the new creator, this minor character, Slack, who before had only appeared in like three strips throughout the run, I want to say on a 5th of January and a 10th of December, started to make daily appearances and completely upstaged the third law. Mm, and the third law's primary balance. Yeah, exactly. So it's just gotten completely out of hand. Our dishes just had bare bits of braised juice. They have similar laws in prosody. Oh, do they really? Yes, I said, and part of the imbalance in verse now is due to Marvel, who shamed his mistress's wife. Wait, the mistress's wife? Yes, his wife had a mistress who he shamed and then gave a pension. Oh, wow. But Marvel ruined poetry for a while by making abstract personification dominant like with a dialogue between the body and the soul. After reciting that poem, I looked at the clock and realized it gotten really late. Then we sighed and looked at the score sheet. Huh, said Junk. The palsy shakes of fear. It reminds me of this elaborate tag game called Palsy that me and some of my coworkers meet to play. Oh yeah? We were both clearly desperate not to talk about the matter at hand. Yeah. Doesn't Jackson get palsy sometimes? Him? No, he just has psoriasis and can't quit smoking. That's why he hates tradesmen. Actually, Junk pulled the sheet toward her. Your friend, Jackson, mm, it might really be more accurate to say he's my colleague. Didn't you say, remember, you were boasting about he had solved some mysteries not long ago? I winced. Um, sort of. That's it, said Junk. We need to bring him in. What? Think about it. Someone from outside. Invite him along to the next hand in footlights and see what he can find about Biddleston cheating. You said he has a great insight into, like, human folly or whatever. Um, the thing about Jackson's insight into human folly is that 
Combined with my own bumbling, it's lately just seemed to make whatever folly was already aboard actually worse. I'm not sure. It might as well be worth a shot. Wow, it has gotten really late. She stood and threw on her overcoat. See if you can convince him. That way we'll be able to figure this out. And as I was in the midst of attempting protest, Junk thanked me for the food and, like a shot, evacuated into the dark. Huh. Gonna need to read pages of erotica before this wound-up white gets his rest. February, Monday the 18th. Lousy day at work. Of course. Harditch pokes fun at me for putting the day of the week before the instant. Not that he was to be looking in my diary, anyway. Another nephew lost, by the by, to the corruption of time. Not Harditch, though. That would be intriguing. Why would I write another nephew? The only. Even if he wasn't actually related to me, me and Megan had gone so far back that young Richard was practically kin. Now she avoids me. I saw him today, over at the trade exchange, and what he said was he was very busy, just very, very busy, and that things were going well, but he didn't want to bore me with family affairs. So it's official I'm out. And already he seems so much like his father. Richard, twice now we've tried helping people and have only worsened the circumstances. Everyone's in a conspiracy against me. Or it's my own dysfunctioning, as well as Jack's, this latter being more probable. And I know I told Junk that I'd cajole Jack along, but is it really a good idea, considering our going record, to have him try to investigate another problem, and one with a group of friends that are integral to my life? Though if I don't, mightn't I be letting Junk down? February, Wednesday the 20th. More baloney from Raphael today. He said that reorganizing the council minutes by members present as opposed to date was a waste of time. And he knows how often members ask for old minutes based on who was there, not when it unfolded. He just wants everything to be the same. It's partially because the weather outside is gray and his mood usually swings with the cumulonimbus. I complained about this to Jackson today, and he said he'd be fascinated to see how a potion of his called Margaret would affect Raphael, because apparently that substance changes people's moods based on the rain. When I asked him to dare Rafe to drink it at the next office party, Jackson said he didn't have the patience to wait till then. I took a Doherty cab to the sandwich place after work, because a Doherty's more elegant for just three and a half Franzen's higher price. Always, you travel with a Doherty. Jackson walks, and his lungs are terrible. But he doesn't go to the sandwich place anyway. As far as we're concerned, it's straight to the Jackson hut on Forlets, where he probably works on his potions or just sits by himself and yells into the empty confines. I've heard him do this at work, and when he tried to deny it, I repeated back what he'd said. If I decide I need blackmail against him, I'll write it down in here. In serious need of the hand and footlights Friday, I wouldn't be keeping myself together if it weren't for them. Two more days and then I can put on the mink. Addendum. Evening. Junk came by to stress she really thinks I should bring Monsieur J. Not sure what I should do. And the liqueur's too sweetened. February, Thursday the 21st. Ah, 
I believe I have found a brilliant solution. Allow me to elaborate. Today, after the blissfully less painful meeting at the Charnel House, Rafe is out with pneumonia or something, Harditch was able to come by my office. Normally, Raphael gives us interminable grief for chatting on the job, though if he had it his way, we'd all just be silent and communicating through number of gasps. I'm not even allowed to play my melodica. Hence, with this fortuitous absence of Rafe, Harditch was able to come by and we got to having sparkling conversation about office romance and the various ghosts I've made friends with and or antagonized this year, and we really got to laughing when I impersonated Raphael. Much as I can laud your replica, Jackson called from across the hall. A less ostentatious volume may be obliged. Yeah, yeah, I said carelessly. Harditch said he probably had to go, and as he was standing with his hat in the door, when elaborating on the different jabs Jackson's made, implying ghosts aren't real, and the different rituals I commence when I think ghosts are about, such as shuffling my shoes around, I detained Harditch for, oh, I don't know, couldn't have been more than another ten or thirty minutes when it hit me. I only had to tell Jackson about the great stuff Harditch passed along not about our complaining related to him. Duh. But that correlated with the more important revelation. Bring Jackson to the card game, but don't tell him about any investigation. Then nothing will get cracked. Say, Jack, I said. He was glaring across the hall, since he'd opened his door a number of times to tell us to quit it with all the chat and laughter. If you come to the game tomorrow, I'll convince the gang to use your tremen share for cooling pale ales or something. Huh? Subsidizing the fact that Tremenshire is already widely available among that foulest brood, merchants, and one I have no singular claim to. Let's also just yield to the fact that your record for promoting my potionery in any way has been infamous, he said. Not to mention harming. So, how to convince him? Yeah, fair, I said. But if you come, besides, he said, flinging his pencil shavings into the bin. I get plenty of your lalation here in the office without needing more out of hours. What? Ever since Raphael sequestered us here, when it's just us two, I'm jiving at you all the time. It doesn't usually get you this irritate. Then suddenly, Harditch came back and remembered a hysterical anecdote about Jeff and his cousin fighting now over whether their buffet luncheonette should be sorted A, from least to most likely to soften your stool, or B, by degrees from only one half garlic for the light stuff like desserts and aperitifs, all the way up to eight parts garlic for the puddings. After further cachinations and hail-fellow-well-mets had been exchanged, Harditch departed and Jackson had accrued a pile of pencil shavings. Looking, oh, let's be honest, a tad tense, he spoke through clenched teeth to say, I have changed my mind. Tomorrow I shall join. Yes, just like that. I hardly know what convinced him, but now I can have him along so Junk's satisfied and thinks he's investigating without an actual damaging investigation being underway. Plus, maybe Jackson will do something with his life. Hooray! You picked just the perfect time, I said. Tomorrow I'm bringing everyone my delectable Sanford Sandys. Dancing, said Jackson, will commence worldwide. February, 
Friday the 22nd. In this entry, my dear journal, I need to share. Something happened that is so wild and improbable that in order to ease you into it, I'll have to first put in a flight of fancy that's actually more believable than the real deal. But that will come as a surprise later. Tonight, as promised, I furnished the repast and a heaping melange of my Sanford Sandys. How does it work, you ask, with bated breath and dribbling jowls? Simplicity, my dear diary. Two slices of dark pumpernickel bread, not just rye, that'll kill it. Spreading a verso slice and a recto slice before you, you layer on the verso a generous Porsche of non-light mayonnaise before the recto is served with pimento, pesto rosso, and then an ellipsis of cream cheese. You don't want to spread it or it'll gunk all over the pesto sauce. Where you can just pinch and flatten each period, though the last few years I have seemed to have lost my knack for doing that. Then, before closing the book, as it were, keep it delicate, pixie dust light by only setting a pair of thin slices of turkey on the verso, followed by Swiss two flitch cuts of a boiled egg and a glut of onion crisps. Perfect. Arrange it together, and that is a Sanford Sandy. Rafe's not present to see this Sanford motley chef giving sequels of half hours to his lunch break in order to prepare these fauna in our kitchenette. Jackson stood making a face at the beautiful sandwiches. Well, I have to do it here so it'll be the most fresh for this evening, I said. He gestured to the fixings, because of course he actually likes the pumpernickel. It's something I'll undergo for the sake of mine attendance. He walked off in a dash. There was something odd in his attitude, I noticed, but I had to chalk it up to a win that he even agreed to go. Soon, six o'clock burst in and Jackson, bless the man, actually took the Doherty along with me. Here it comes, an opportune moment to test my skill. He spoke from the bench at the other end of the cab. Ah, think you might be a sharp with the cards? Yes. Out we came and Jackson paid, but didn't tip, shock. So I subsidized before into the theater we lunged. Tonight on the marquee was an ad for... Sous Chat du Grand Café. Have I spelled it correctly? Let me double-check the playbill. C-E-U-X, brackets C-H-A-T-S, then D-U, Grand Café. My French is impeccable, if only I knew what it meant. Now trust me, I said, before we broke through the second set of brass-battened doors. You are going to love these guys. You'll feel like you've known them for years. Jackson refrained from making the obvious jab he could have that actually, since in Motleyan fashion, I'd been filling him in on the lives and loves of these people, whether he wanted it or not, it had been like he'd known them for years. He merely turned toward the foyer and we walked in. By the way, I mentioned, I think the mezzanine is haunted, but that's just me. There he is, said Junk, who had to have spied my Homburg over the railing view. He's actually on time for once. Never thought that day would come. Then I heard Krugly cough. <clears throat> Brought a companion? Yes, I said. We'd come to the second floor. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the infamous Jackson. Ah, said Jack. 
over their cards, everybody gawked. I realized neither I nor Junk warned anyone that Jackson would actually be coming. It was a coup I'd been scintillating about for eons, but based on Jackson's personality, it of course had never been expected. Nice to meet you, said Junk, maybe too quickly. Jackson, said Biddleston, hello. It's like the infamous goat of the damned rising up out the sea. Krugly swung toward him. Jackson, a legend of the office. He stuck out a hand, and with that there were some shakes all round. You know Motley from work? Biddleston said. Jackson stared at her, then took his seat. Oh, if he knows the Sanford, sir, we all ken. There'll be not a hint of mystery, Biddy, about us knowing Jackson well. He leveled with said Jackson. Motley's as a nexus for intel, eh? Incessantly. They all laughed, and I slapped him on the back, and Jackson continued to pout. This was going off without a hitch. The newcomer settled in. We explained the rules to him, well, mostly Junk did, and whenever Krugly or I asked if he needed clarification, he waved us off dismissively and stuck to the cards. Likely Motley's already blown his ear off with the mechanics, said Krugly. On second thought, it isn't nearly gossipy enough, huh? Hey, the pass it on begins now, though it already should have with that nexus bit. Waiting for you to notice. Jackson looked on dully as Biddleston whispered into Krug's ear and I explained the rules. Since I'd curried for Jackson's entree by providing two extra decks to share in the load between Junk and me, Jack sat between us and, regrettably, on a chair that was about five feet higher than everyone else's. Subsequently, I had to crane up from him the penultimate messenger in the Passadon. I had actually heard Krugly too loudly whisper a phrase akin to, Staying up late is my life, so I was excited to announce how Jack's muttering had rendered that one. I strained up. Jay cupped his hand round my ear. This shall not last. I sniffed. Huh? Jack removed himself and he straightened on his high pedestal. Everyone looked at me. I cleared my throat. Then I said, Okay, I got picking up weights is my life. And everyone burst howling while Jackson remained stolid, and I tried to put on another big grin. No, said Biddleston, chuckling. <laughs> Not quite. Since this week was our fourth hand, which would in all likelihood finish the game, we decided to go on with it, but have Jackson's score not really count. Besides, he wouldn't be able to catch up anyway. So, Motley tells me you like potions? Biddleston added a couple bones to her clean book of aces. Yes, I am a straggler on a ship sinking. Jackson, I noticed, had laid down no cards and was keeping them firmly planted in his digits. I am myself with no one else trying to revive a lost art. Yeah, well, but that's not true, said Junk. Did you discard, Krug? Merchants, like the one Bid works for, but Mott's probably already told you that, use potions like the Tremon stuff or whatever. Jackson said zip, then turned to Biddleston to say, You are a habitué of the stage, aren't you? Of the audience. Uh-huh she said. I told you about the way she would describe actions and plays to her mom, right? I said, picking up two jokers, sure to be a wild book. It's so, said Jack. Jackson, you haven't gotten into your foot yet, Junk said. Sweat not, the countdown rings. Everyone else just coughed and kept taking up their turns. I had gotten used to comprehending Jack when he just said weird shit like that. You gotta start picking the jam from your toes, Jack, I said. 
On top of that charming phrase with the mix of your Sanford Sandys, my appetite's due to be in permanent corruption. It's something my Aunt Jenny used to say, said Bid. I discard a five. My mother, though, would always tell her she didn't want to hear things like that. Too indecent. Jackson eyed her. Did she? Oh, yeah, said Biddleston. Aha, junk, you're up to three clean books. Pretty soon it was thirty minutes till curtain, and the game was in the tense standoff phase where you just know someone's going to go out and end the hand any moment. But nobody can for sure say who. And all the more suspenseful since this hand would more than likely bring someone to the game-ending, coveted 10,000-point mark. 10K and the game is donezo. Whoever has the plurality of points over 10,000 is crowned the king. All right, I am not going out this round, but maybe next time. This might not be a bad time, Jackson, to count your losses, since either me or Biddleston are going to go out sometime within the next few rotations. Junk looked at the amazingly grave man in the high chair, who still hadn't even touched his foot and had no cards on the table, a far from promising prospect, to say the least. Games, said Jackson, and their consanguineals, the permutations of them, are what truly captivate Junk. Yeah, said Junk, that's basically true. But I'm just saying, you might want to- Noticing he is my good woman, Junk, that I'm the true one absolutely enchained to hand and foot, said Krugly. Junk here is more promiscuous. And I am a master of the cards, I said, discarding a nine. My obsessive insistence on making a wild book, the lodestone that I can never quite deviate from, had been my downfall this time. I'm a master in style. Motley has told that your post trimmed you of work said Jackson. Oh, yeah, recently-ish, said Biddleston. You know, it happens. It does. It's why I'm saying she needs to do that aural describing thing. She'd be perfect at it, I said. Motley's fondness for voices susurrating cannot be a surprise, muttered Jackson, when one considers his belief in wraiths. They just seem to be attracted to me. Ah, said Junk, who'd just drawn. I think this is going to be it. We all looked at her and, of course, reflexively checked on our boards. She had going out written all over her. So, first I'll take my dirty book of fours, and before you begin doing all of that, junk, said Jackson, the brim of his hat casting a shadow over the high, upraised scowl, I may ask Biddleston to recall the first phrase in the Passadon. She looked up. Huh? Jackson's brim angled down. The phrase, starting that pass-it-on jape. What was it? Biddleston blinked. Oh, I don't quite remember. Krugly, what was it I- Cease! We all looked up at Jackson. He said, What was it? Well, uh, she looked at Krugly. I think it was staying up late's my life, wasn't it? Yeah, said Junk. Cease, Jackson said. What on earth was he doing? And it came out on the receiving end as, Uh, lifting up weights is my life, I said. But why- And yet, he said, I did not whisper any such phrase in Motley's ear. I stood. You are always doing this. What? Junk said. Is it true? I looked at her. It's 
yes, he did whisper something unrelated, then how did you know to say something so similar to the original phrase? Chunk looked at Biddleston, and I swear the former had a glimmer of just total excitement buried deep in her eye. Oh no. Well, you know, Krugly isn't exactly susurrating in the game, I said. I can usually hear some version of what's being said. I carefully sat back down. Ought to have told me then, Krugly said, a little fast. I hadn't the foggiest that I'd been blaring out like that. And usually Motley's the one who's loud, Junk said. True, I acknowledged. But yeah, I noticed that you are always kind of loud, Krugly. Junk put an elbow over the back of her chair, the other hand still clutching the presumably winning playing cards. Which ruins the whole point of the game. Ha! Jackson tossed back his head like a drama queen. I could not say it ruins the game Krugly is playing. Motley, is he always like this? Krugly sat back and appeared to be attempting to loosen his limbs. I have to say, he's been a laugh, but is also worthy to note, said Jackson, that the original phrase allegedly whispered by Biddleston seemed to occupy an awfully long slot of time, for staying up late is my life. Oh, well, I might have been stumbling in first trying to get it out, said Biddleston. Was she blushing right now? Ah, said Jackson. But I must say, for a phrase authored by you yourself, you have had an awfully difficult time recollecting it not two hours later. Oi, Krugly laid an arm across the table. Jackson, is it? Perhaps you ought to pedal off for Motley tells me you're fairly injudicious in how you grab your ingredients. A threat from an officer obviously cut in on gambling. Jackson narrowed his eyes. Illegal since not long after the commencement of the Cirques. We all froze. Then I grabbed his arm. You're being an asshole. Junk shrugged. He's actually doing what we wanted him to do. Krugly turned. Wanted him to do? But I never asked him to investigate anything, I blurted, then covered my mouth. You didn't, said Junk. Motley, that was the whole point. I didn't want him doing what he's doing right now, which is ruining the- It is surprising, Junk, that you'd want to sick me on your acquaintances when one realizes you have been gaming the system yourself, said Jackson. In a way, that's befitting for one with whom games generally, and the creation thereof, is her enthusiasm. Well, said Junk, what do you mean? Jackson held up his cards. Do note that with the injection of additional cards on behalf of my presence, fewer of the Junk Motley Jackson stash is scratched. Well, yeah, of course, said Junk. Mott brought along ones that are newer to add to our pile so you could play. It is because, said Jackson, the new cards added for me have not yet had the chance to be scratched by an anxious, jittering Junk. Uh... In light of an idea raised last month by, I've only heard of it secondhand, I believe some undergraduate debate forum or other, that the rise in hemophiliac bleeding since the cirques is most commonly observed in moments of discomfiture or stress, the scientific communities have been toying lately in the periodicals with the idea that this approaches truth, but at the wrong angle. It is stress that makes us scratch. Thus, why we bleed. Or why things seem so shoddy, I said. Yes, books, or in our case, playing cards. Having all those newspapers on a rack in your front room really did pay off, huh? I said. 
But me being nervous and maybe scratching a few cards doesn't prove anything, said Junk. Yes, but I knew what to look for. Jackson held up a card. Certain of these cards have two scratches now, which Motley, Krugly, Biddleston, you never thought to look for. Once you accepted their cards should have scratches, the critical eye went blank. Okay, but it still isn't proof, said Junk. From Motley's previous intel, ceaseless gossip about all of you, I came to be aware that Junk is someone for whom making games is a lifelong passion. How does she make games? Often by varying the rules off of the skeleton of another previously existing scheme. Scheme? I said. For a game. In this case, hand and foot. Okay, said Junk. And? It's obvious you've wondered to yourself if the game might be improved if every umpth turn a player could draw three cards instead of two. I understand one always lays down a red three when encountered without it counting as a card drawn. Yes, said Junk. I'd guess it started there. But it's not actually advantageous to overdraw. In hand and foot, cards still in your hand and not laid out on your board are counted against you. Which is why you are occasionally, discreetly, discarding two cards at a time as well. Shall we prove it? Jackson asked Krugly to count the number of cards in our discard pile. With some hesitation, he did so. So, since every player must discard one card at the end of every turn, then that number must be, once divided by three, the number of turns Junk has had. Yet that result is far larger than any reasonable number of turns for Junk to have had tonight in this one hand. Yeah, but for all we know, you just discarded multiple cards. And stood what to gain, said Jackson. I'm not betting, as you three are. It does fit, Junk, I said, discouraged. So fine, she said. I was testing out alternatives for the game that I think would actually make it better, but whatever. All the betting's been for low stakes anyway. And yet, even that small rash of funds was enough to make Biddleston betray Krugly in their scheme, said Jackson, and begin to lie when whispering in the Passadon. Biddleston was looking pretty bashful. Krugly was furious. Lie about what? This is mudslinging for nothing. Krugly, you are suspiciously anxious to insult Motley post-haste, a pattern I understand occurs weekly. Yet, critically, you did this after all cards had been dealt. All the cards were dealt since Motley was tardy, as he always is. Convenient. Thus, you, an officer of the law, can be covertly in on the bets through a familial connection, sister-in-law Biddleston, without the rest of the group knowing that you've betrayed your badge. Jackson lit a cigarette and did that odd thing where he doesn't inhale, just sniffs whatever smoke floats off the end. What a jerk. But what would she have possibly been whispering? Said Krugly. The show's gonna start soon, Junk said. A moment. This shan't take long. Krugly, to answer your query, what she would have been whispering is the only thing she can advantageously share, which is what cards are in her initially dealt hand. The advantage is small, but it is something. Since you and Biddleston share the cards, Krugly, any, let us say, nines she has in her hand are less likely to be drawn by you. Only slightly, said Junk. 
Remember, they're sharing like 200 carts. Only slightly, said Jackson, is still something. She also used to profess that she would not pursue nines, for example, if she had them in her hand. It told Krugly which cards to abstain from pursuit. People were starting to order champagne and wade into the balconies. Maybe we should start heading into the theater, I said. This was awful. An accusation as bold as you'll be, said Krugly. Oh no, Jackson hates hearing about that. He grimaced. I thought you should know, Krugly, he said, raising his voice over the din, that Biddleston at this point is likely lying to you. The arrangement was, what? That we would split it in half, Biddleston said. Ah, if my bet was successful. Motley, Junk, I'm sorry, but I just let something slip about the money aspects of our game to Krugly, and then he proposed this scheme. I would bet on myself to be in second and help him win first. Then I'd split the second place winnings with him. Krugly was now looking down at the table. And yet you recently, ever since being short-shrifted work with the merchant, I'm guessing since two full games ago? She nodded. You decided you needed more for yourself, said Jackson. You wish to win. You started lying to me about what was in your hand, Bid? Krugly said. And you've been lying and betting on yourself to win instead of place? That's why you've been winning now? Thought it was unintentional. In the betting scheme between Motley, Junk, and Biddleston, one always earns more money if they bet on themselves to win first place instead of simply betting on oneself to hit second. Biddleston looked at Jackson. A party of doyens laughing and trading foulard wraps bubbled by us. Bid gave a half-smile. How did you know? You possessed a mother who was priggish, sensitive, uptight. Yet, you saw theatrical productions with her where you, the daughter that must have known the woman's nerve ends thoroughly, had to describe to the blind genteel what was happening in these stories. Jackson peered through the door, leading to the auditorium. Naturally, I can assume you began to add little alterations so as not to displease the matron. We all sat there amidst the babble while Krugly looked at his watch and commented we ought to be going in soon. After a moment, Biddleston looked up and said, It started with King Lear, I think, when it comes to that scene where the man blinds himself by poking out his eyes. Right, I said, and he's on stage with a rag and you know it's all covered in blood. I could not just turn to my mother and tell her that, so I said he had, you know, that he had blindfolded himself. Did it ever get more elaborate? I asked. The alterations? Oh, sure, said Bid. I would make up palaces with fireworks where there actually might be battlefields with culverins. Or whatever. I had to get pretty elaborate. Here she had to smile. You should imagine how many times characters were breathing heavily because, oh, mom, they're just sick. We laughed, although a smidge half-heartedly. She has an ice pack on her head. An usher dimmed the gas lights. Curtain soon. And as a postscript, Jackson said, looking all of a sudden no longer vengeful and vile, but truly miserable. Motley has embroidered the habit of rubbing one's boots along the ground in order to, conveniently, tip up a few cards in his eleven-card foot. I looked for it when he mentioned he thought the balcony haunted. 
I hate to admit it, dear diary, but it's true. It started with only anti-spectral intentions, but I just loved the idea of feeling more sure of planning for a wild book. We all slumped around the table, heads hung, beer flat. So, wait, said Junk. Yes, Jackson said. You all four cheat. Suddenly, I looked at Junk, then at Krugly, and Krugly looked at me. Biddleston divided her gaze betwixt the three of us. And then, it happened. Krugly, hunched over his cards, started laughing very loudly. He wiped his eye and said, Well, I had to wonder what all the tension was about. And then, we were all howling with laughter. It was just too funny. None of us had been able to resist the temptation of a little scamp. Look how alike we are, Junk said. And Biddleston said, it's true, I suppose. I said, you have to admit, every way we cheated did sort of connect to our hobbies. We kept chattering. Suddenly, everything felt better than it had before, even. The usher coughed, because clearly they were about to close the door. It was like some kind of tension that, I realized, had been there, presiding over our card games, was gone. It was nice. Then how's my cheat tie into a hobby or characteristic of mine? Krugly said. Well, a cop on the take, said Junk, and I spat chips, laughing so hard. Jackson sat on his high chair, looking down at his lap as we all put our arms around each other and congratulated each other on our ingenious methods of deception. Guess we better get into the show, said Junk. Hey, she stood as we all started, gathering ourselves up. Bid, you really did just make stuff up, either when you were whispering to Krug or doing oral describing for your mom? Bid nodded. Chunk, tucking our cards into her bag, said, You maybe want to help me with the actual writing and describing part of my mystery book game? I've already got a good puzzle, though I now think I'll have to add some stuff about people cheating at cards. Yes, I said. Of course I'd pay you, Junk said to her. Biddleston, standing there, smiling for a while, said, Sure. She had a reserved manner, but I could tell. She was aglow. All of us started to shuffle toward our balcony seats, Junk getting excited. I was thinking I could call it the Four Unjust Friends, Biddleston already injecting her improvements, maybe, with an understandably impatient usher holding the door when I noticed someone was missing. You guys go ahead, I'll sneak in, and the usher rolled his eyes as he let the door softly shut. Through the bars of the railing, I could see a lone strider walking through the glass double doors of the exit. I ran down and caught him just as he was about to leave the foyer. Hey, I said, where are you going? Jackson stopped. He kept his back to me. Heading home, he said. I actually wanted you to invite him when you said he was biased against tradespeople, Junk would admit to me later. I thought with his leanings he'd be more predisposed to find out Biddleston, a person working for a merchant, than anyone else. Like me. Jackson, he's always just a tool. Well, don't you want to see the play? I said. From the title, I gather it's a comedy to do with pets. Even if it's terrible, it might be fun. I came close. What is it that made you want to come anyhow? No answer. I said, just a chance to exercise that intuitive mind of yours and figure out what might be amiss among the hand and footlights? No, Motley. Jackson said. 
he sounded like I remember at Christmas. What I heard Jackson shout to himself in his office once was, Everyone's always been right about you. It was done, obviously, from a selfish need to undermine your group of happy, smiling friends. His head was down. He added, Characteristic behavior. I gawked at him. And then I put a big motley arm around his back. Well, it's a good thing you're so bad at it. In fact, you did the opposite. Actually, we could use your kind of incompetence at the hand and footlights. So you want to join us, really, just to play Friday next? There was a long silence before he sighed and said, No, actually, he couldn't do that. It wouldn't do that and yada yada about him being too removed and selfish and all that other nonsense. Yeah, I don't know what he's going to do with himself. Jack walked off into the night, and the door closed behind him. There, I've indulged in the promised flight of fancy. Dear Journal, believe it or don't, this is what happened. So you want to join us, really, just to play Friday next? Pause. I could hear him breathing. He disengaged and walked to the other side of the room and turned to face me. Then, hatefully, begrudgedly, almost wanting to tear my eyes out, he said, Yes, and said this time he'd bring the food. End of episode three. Jackson the Cat is written by Oak Edel and performed by me, Jason Everett. The theme music is Black Widow by Graham. Stay tuned for another exciting mystery. Until then, 